My name is Dane Wilburn. I'm a woman, a witch, a wife, a moth hole, a singer, an act painter, a writer, a lover, a fighter, a student, a chef, a fur baby parent, a mystic, and several things that are too impolite to mention in mixed company. Welcome to Dame's Eclectic Brain. Dame's Eclectic Brain. So welcome to Dame's Eclectic Brain, where I talk to people you may or may not know about things you may or may not care about, but you definitely want to hear about. Today, my guest is Patty Wheeler, who's in my cell phone as Pastry Wheeler, because <laughs> I obviously don't know how to type. Uh, we know each other through the moth and various sundry other things, and I'm so glad she's got a chance to, we're going to, she's on the show. Very happy to have it. Hi. Hi, Dad. Dame. Thanks for having me here. Yay. So excited. I'm excited, too. I don't know what we're going to talk about. It's First great. of all, I want to talk about the fact that we did an interview before correct we did yes and shannon Kaysen didn't do any of the editing that he needed to do so that we he could put that nothing. on the show he, he did nothing he did nothing now had he, he looked been good here, he looked awesome he always does he looked great but yeah he didn't but had he anything. been here he would be able to like put his hand up and stop us from recording this section but he's not here that so motherfucker is not he's here. not here so there he get he gets it full on we already did this once he didn't edit it so thank you for being on the show twice. You're welcome. <laughs> so I wanted to start off with this big piece about you that I find fascinating, which is the fact that, so you work with a moth. Yeah. And that's great. That's awesome. But you actually have a degree in storytelling. I do. So yeah. I, you're the only person I know with this degree and I covet it so much. So yeah. tell me where you got it, how it happened, the whole spiel. So I have a master's degree in storytelling from East Tennessee State University, which is in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is more than that uh, song, than that line in that song <laughs> that they sing where it's actually forbidden from being played anywhere in Johnson City. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's in Appalachia, uh, right next to Jonesboro, which is where the International Storytelling Center is. And the National Storytelling Festival happens every year. It just happened this last weekend. And so this program uh, is 30-ish years old. Uh, it began primarily for storytellers who are more traditional and who work with kids and work in libraries. So it was initially a reading master's degree with a mm. concentration in storytelling. Um, and I am, one, I am the first student who worked professionally in first-person narrative uh, before attending the program. And I think that hopefully the two worlds are going to get tighter and tighter and more people like me and like you will know about the program and, and attend it. It's a really great way to learn about the history of storytelling and to get lots of stage time and learn about how to craft a, a more powerful narrative. Um, but I found out about it uh, when I, I had been working for the moth for several years and I just needed some sort of, I needed a change uh, personally and professionally. And so I, I looked at like performance PhDs and all mm. these like super intellectual bougie things that I just decided <laughs> you know what I want to do I want to get on stage and I want to be better at my craft and uh, I found ETSU and it, it was awesome 
And I got to meet so many people who tell stories in such different ways than how you and I do. Uh, people think it's crazy that we tell stories in bars or, you know, that, <laughs> that we, that we swear that we tell stories about ourselves. And, and, uh, it's really interesting to get to see the, to open their eyes and then to have my eyes open to how powerful it can be to tell a story about a magical frog and how that can connect to our lives. And, and it's more than just kitty fairy tales in, and fable and fairy tales are is so important to our adult lives, I think, too. So it's it was an awesome thing. I'm glad I had it. It's um, I love that I I would have never thought that that first person narrative is sort of the new kids in the storytelling world. Yeah. Like we're still. We're still the young ones. Like as soon as you say you're a storyteller, I had this conversation actually uh, last show with Vanessa Shields about whenever she comes across mm -hmm. the uh, border, she says, I'm going to do a storytelling show or whatever. And everybody, there's always a stop. Like you're going to talk to kids in bars. What are you doing? And I find the entire art form of storytelling is now just sort of coming towards this other moth piece and hopefully, I agree with you, I'm hoping that there's some sort of, that we'll all learn from each other. Because I think there are a lot of people who think, there are, a lot of, there are people who now think of storytelling as first-person narrative. Uh -huh. They don't know the history of storytelling beyond that. And then there are other people who, that's all they have is the history. So if you tell them you're a storyteller, they're like, oh, well, how old are the kids you talk to? Yeah. What libraries are you in? It's exactly. like, mm, no, I actually tell stories in bars to grownups. Yeah. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, that's a thing? You could do that? Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, too, you know, you and I both work with The Moth, but The Moth is just one of many storytelling organizations around the world that that focus on first-person narrative. Pardon me. Just letting out my Topo Chico. And, um, <laughs> and um, I'm uh, looking for a sponsor if you're yeah. interested, Topo Chico. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's interesting to me how the moth, through our partnerships with public radio stations, have has been able to grow to such this huge thing so that when people think of first-person narrative, they think of the moth, even though there is, uh, you know, like Second Story in Chicago has been yeah. around for nearly as long Um and focuses more on the uh, live lit aspect of things, but it's still a, a first person narrative storytelling. So my understanding group. of live lit is you're reading, correct? Is that correct. And okay. But when, but even though it's reading, so I've um, had the uh, awesome honor to be able to produce a second story show in Ann Arbor a few years ago, and I've attended a lot of them, and. Uh, while it is reading, the the shows are are directed very heavily, and the people, the uh, physical book in front of them, or pages in front of them, and and the and the um, music stand are more a prop than anything. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's different, but it's very much the same. I don't. I think that any kind of performing where you are standing in front of an audience is going to be challenging i don't care what they put in front of you yeah. so live lit first person narrative whatever it is acting i've i haven't done the live lit piece a couple other things i've done it's just always going i've i played first violin for a long time and mm -hmm. having a music stand didn't help you know <laughs> sitting yeah, down yeah. and having a music stand didn't mean you didn't know the song like you still had to know your entire part exactly even though the paper's sitting there it's fine <laughs> it's not 
it's not necessarily like saving you from anything. It's still no. an art form. It's still very complex. Um, between the two, though, I'm fascinated because you've done both. Yeah. Um, you, you know, where's your where's your leaning? Like, if you could do. Yeah. What a great question. So, just a couple weeks ago, I was um, I did a reading at Third Man Records here mm. in the Cast Corridor, which feels like an entire other thing because I was reading with um, musician. I'm sorry, with uh, writers who are not performers, and ah. and I am a performer who's a writer, and uh, I am interested in publishing more than I have in the last few years, and so I'm I'm searching out more opportunities like that where uh, the crowd is literary, not oral necessarily. Mm which is a big distinction in the history of storytelling and where a lot of the fight <laughs> historically has come from. But also um, that was a, a whole other side of it where I performed in the way that I would consider live lit and the other writers read. Yes. And they, they just, they were awesome and they were, and their readings were great, but it was more reading and that is that was interesting to me to be a part of with these people whose writing I really admire and whose performances up there were great, but who are not performers. And I think that I love all of it equally and that they all have a different meaning for me, though. So being able to go into, like, you and I recently told stories in a cabin in the middle of of the woods on we're, a farm we're certainly going to talk about that yeah and <laughs> and that we didn't need anything other than us and the people yes and it was awesome and there were no microphones there was no amplification there were no lights it was just us in the woods in this old cabin with people in chairs and on the ground and there's so much magic in that but then there's so much magic in standing on this stage where music happens in the middle of the cast corridor at Third Man performing a piece that I wrote about my dad and about his love for music and how having that music stand with that essay on it propelled me to do better. Well, okay. Okay. I don't know why. I don't know. They both have their own thing, but they're, and they both fuel me in different ways. I, I, I feel like the distinction, if I had to put it into people, I feel like it falls between Neil uh, Gaiman and David Sedaris. I feel Neil Gaiman reads his work, sure, but doesn't necessarily perform the work, but there's something about David Sedaris that even though he's reading, it feels performative. Correct. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And that and that I lean then more toward David Sedaris, which, yeah. I, you know, that I would what what a thing to even compare myself to him in any way, because he's a, a, an idol. But that that what he does is very much more uh, performative reading. And what's he, funny is that when he when um one of his books came out. He did a very intimate reading at Literati in Ann Arbor at the bookstore there. Uh, there were 50 of us that got 
won the lottery to get to go there. <laughs> it was amazing. He read this essay that he had just written that he had never published, hadn't yet published, and had never performed until that day about his sister's suicide, which is a subject that's very close to me. But um, afterward, he was signing books, and I brought mine up, and I and I said, "Hey, I'm you know I produced the moth here," and his response was, "Oh, they've tried to get me." And that was all he said. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Like, yeah. You don't, you don't want to do that style of storytelling. Yes. Yeah. It's, I could picture it being, I think that it, it works well to sort of place yourself in a position where you are possibly too big or too well known or too busy or too whatever to do the moth. But it is a different taskmaster totally. than, yeah. not that I think either one of them is, is easier like no. i think they're they're equal but it's a it, we i've also worked with uh because i've hosted uh some moth shows so i've got a chance to work with people who normally are actors mm -hmm. and they have a very hard time shifting from performing a story to telling it and it is yeah. a different thing to memorize it and sort of go out there and voice project and and broadway show it when really the thing about the moth is you're still in your you're having a beer in somebody's kitchen yeah and oh man i got a story for you you know it's still sort of like that even though it's curated. it's more refined it's, it's curated curated, yeah. curated yeah and that you know and that's how traditional storytelling is supposed to be too though um and that's a thing that i didn't know before attending etsu in graduate school is that the wit even with a fable the storytellers and the masters at it uh, have, they know the beginning and they know the end and they know the points they want to hit, but every time they tell, they tell the story, it's different. Yes. And that's uh, always how I had um, performed with my personal narrative, but to know that that's also how people telling Goldilocks tell Goldilocks or, yeah. or whatever, and that's pretty cool to think about. like Because we all... Because the story becomes different wherever you're telling it because the audience is a character in your story. Yes. So when you when we are on stage, whether we're in Detroit or in the woods or recording into a microphone with people around us or not around us, everyone who is experiencing the story with us adds something to it. Absolutely. Even minor things like the people who are on the stage with you, the stories mm -hmm. that are told around you. Yeah. Um, the room. I, you know, certain there's a difference between telling a story in uh, I got a chance to do Sundance mm -hmm. uh, earlier, like last year, and there were maybe 100 people in that room. But I've also done Seattle with the moth, which is like. 2,200 people mm -hmm. and you could tell the same story, but that's going to be very different tellings. Not that the story is changed, but how you engage, where you hit, where it lands. And then there are also audience pieces. My stories have a tendency to lean towards humorous, but there's every audience decides what's funny. Mm -hmm. So oh, totally. if you know, Seattle has a very different idea of what's funny than Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. They, they laughed in different places. So just those pieces and 
you know, this is the thing I've been, I tell people when I'm hosting anyway, is you're telling your part of a human story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm telling my part of a story that belongs to everybody in the room. I'm kind of getting the honor to stand on stage and tell this story. But ultimately, this is like, it's a boy meets girl story. It's, you know, it, there's only so many stories. The trope is known. Yeah. Right, the, yeah. the trope. There's only so many tropes that we're going to do. This is my version of that trope. Yeah. But I get a chance to tell it in front of you, and thank you for that. But ultimately, it's still based on the people in the room. Yeah, So totally. I need to ask you because... I had the honor of going with you to two music events to tell stories at music events, which is so strange. But I also want to ask you, what is the deal with you and stuff that's happening outside? Oh, yeah. And what is it? Why can't we do things in buildings? What is it with you and, and, and trees and hills and dirt? Like, what's the deal? I know. That's uh, <laughs> the I um, that's so funny. So I'm definitely an outdoor kid. And yes. uh, and being raised by my parents like I was I was raised to love music and to love the outdoors and so I happen to be connected to a lot of people who put on outdoor music festivals which is um cool a great thing to get to have and they're also people who are really open to our uh way of telling stories and so because of that I uh have been given the opportunity to curate and uh participate in storytelling shows at music festivals all across the country always looking to add more um but i I think that there's something about that open air style of venue that connects us to something deeper in our history of of humanity i mean if we want to go back as far as the greek theaters and how how theater was open air from the beginning of of theater and and while storytelling isn't theater in the capital t way it is it is and so i think that being on a stage in nature connects me is this going to sound like such a hippie bullshit thing to say, but makes me feel connected to the, the greater good, the greater, the, like the, like all of it. I feel connected to all of it being there. I love inside too, though. Yeah. I don't believe that because you took me <laughs> to Pickathon and Pickathon. Tell everybody about Pickathon. So Pickathon. For people who don't know. Yeah. Pickathon is this uh, festival in Happy Valley, Oregon, which is outside of, Portland and it's on a farm uh, and it this last year was its 20th year and uh, we get to tell stories on this stage called the woods stage which is called the woods stage because it's in the woods and the stage itself is made out of like these amazing branches that have been sculpted to create this the edge of the stage and it's, it's absolutely amazingly beautiful but it's stunning. Yeah, it's uh, one of Charles Bradley's last shows was played on that stage. She died just a few weeks after he performed there last year, which was amazing. And uh, it's a really powerful place to be. But it, but and being around people who are music lovers, I think they automatically have an appreciation for things that might be outside of the box in a way that 
folks might not in other venues. We are outside of the box. I can't. Uh, uh, there's a friend of mine who is the uh, publisher of Right Bloody, um, and he is a poet named Derek Brown. And Derek Brown opens for rock and roll bands. Um, but he has the kind of poetry where you can open for rock and roll bands. You take him and put him in a nursing home, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. But, yeah, he's the only person I know who's standing in a different kind of venue and still doing something. Like the audience, when I, if you go to see the Foo Fighters, you're not expecting, expecting the opening act to be a poet. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's already sort of odd and weird as soon as the curtain opens. And then to still hold that space and hold that stage. And it wasn't like that at Pickathon. It seemed to be very open. this very sort of loving environment. Like, hey, we're just here to listen to you as well. I will say this. It was very early in the morning. Yeah. So thank you, Pickathon, for showing up. And I'm sort of mad because the kids had the best seats because there's hammocks in the trees around the stage as well, which I think is the best seat for anything. Yeah. But as you talk about liking indoors, too, let's talk about Hollerfest because that was also where? Outside. So... Walk us through Hollerfest. Yeah, Hollerfest uh, is at a smaller farm in uh, southeastern Michigan. Um, and the festival is... So Pickathon has really huge names at, the, at it. Like uh, last year, Dinosaur Jr. was the headliner. Um, this year, Built to Spill was the headliner. You know, they have these big rock and roll acts who... Pardon me. Who... Um, are you know are way more famous than you and I are? Uh, <laughs> Wait, but, yeah, yeah. But um, so far, so f- yes, right now, <laughs> right as of now, this moment. Yeah. But uh, at Hollerfest, it's a much more homegrown thing where a lot of the music is acoustic and old timey, and the idea of storytelling fits there uh, in a different way than I think it does in other places because storytelling is considered a you know, a, a, an ancient craft. Um, and yeah. so th- there we were able to be in that amazing cabin, which was still, I mean, there were no, there's no r- running water or toilets, sorry. And, uh, and that <laughs> there, but it, it's very, um, I don't know. I thought, t- so I've told stories around campfires for, uh, Tell, I've told scary stories around campfires that are true scary stories. I've told, you know, ghost stories, traditional ghost stories around them. And and, and I've told stories in weird old Appalachian buildings kind of like this mm. uh, cabin. And I, and I thought that the cabin just really had this, like, wild feel to it where everybody was – it was the inside of the outside, but it was still outside. Yes. And there are people gathering on the porch of the building and kind of gathering at the windows uh, because they couldn't get in and it was still hot and 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 muggy, but still close. And it felt very intimate and it felt it felt very authentic to the craft. It felt like this is how we used to do this Mm -hmm. um, before first person. It, at, at some point, some of these stories and, and the, 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 the fairy tales, whatever, they're still mm, leaning toward first-person narrative. You just right. have become written down, and there's a certain thing that we all know, and we say it all the same way. But it's still, storytelling is still first-person narrative at some point. Yeah. And this felt really like part of our Appalachian roots of how we used to sit around and you just tell stories and keep people engaged 
But the reason why she paused and said there are no indoor toilets, sorry, is because I have a nonsensical fear of porta potties because <laughs> my father, my grandfather was a plumber. So I've had indoor plumbing. I had indoor plumbing before I was born. Like I've, indoor plumbing is just a thing in my family. We never camped. Unfortunately, I had to break the seal on that at the last holler fest, but that's all right. I survived it. Um, but yeah, if you could find a venue to take me to that has a building, that'd be great. Like with a toilet in it, that'd be lovely. So I don't want to push that, but that'd be wonderful. Well, the, this opportunity that we have coming up that I'm hoping will work out for you to come to is um, at the Lamplight Music Festival, which is in Grand Rapids. And Lamplight is this, this is such a cool thing because they started it six years ago in people's living rooms. So, <laughs> you know, there are these punk kids who, um, in the punk community, you play house shows all the time. And in, yeah. and in the, in the indie music community, house shows are a thing. Um, we house concerts are a thing in the traditional storytelling community, but it's not a thing that, that we've really gotten into. So last year uh, we went out there, uh, me and a couple of Detroit storytellers went out there uh, and told stories at Lamplight, which was still in someone's living room. And there were, a hundred people there. It was awesome. <laughs> so this year they're moving to the wealthy theater, which is Ooh. this beautiful theater in Grand Rapids. Um, and we're, we get to go and be a part of it there, which is totally inside and has plumbing, but it's <laughs> nice to, to see that, um, as these, uh, smaller festivals that we're a part of grow, that they still want to keep storytelling, um, as a part of their programming. And that they see the value in it, in providing diverse programming, uh, because they trust that their audiences are ready for it. I love the idea. I had a really good time, even though it was uh, in certain ways outside of my wheelhouse. I'm very good at storytelling, but outdoor venues are not necessarily how I live my life. But shout out to Pickathon, some of the best kombucha I've ever had, and just gorgeous, gorgeous place. Shout out to Hollerfest, that's some of the best food I've ever had. And it's just, it was vegetarian and vegan, and I wasn't down, and then I ate it, and I'm like, you know what? I take it all back, it's delicious. Um, that corn salad. The corn salad, okay. So if you did Hollerfest this year, uh, and you're listening to us, I need a recipe for the corn salad. Because I really would eat a couch size portion of corn salad. That was that was awesome. It was delicious. So, so you have this whole background in music mm-hmm. that's beyond the storytelling. And I find it fascinating just sort of the story of your music life and how you got into all of this and music and your dad. So I just want you to share some of that with us. Yes. Because so- I love it. Uh, I, I am not a musician and never, I tried once in high school and we what played, instrument? I played the bass, um, in the, in a band for our talent show, our senior year of high school. And it was like, I bought, I'm left-handed. So I bought a left-handed sparkly Dan Electro for the only purpose of playing the show where, so in high school I was like. We moved when I was 16, so junior and senior years were in the, in this high school in suburban Detroit, and I had grown up in the country where I'd been put in this box for, you know, 16 years of my life that I was a I was a 
athlete and I was very good at soccer and what I did was soccer, but I wanted to be, I knew that that wasn't the only thing I was. So when we moved, um, I fell into the theater crowd and got, uh, to express myself artistically. And I met, made these friends who were musicians. Uh, my, my friend Nick and uh, Paul, who would later become my fiance and then later die, he was a guitar player who was, who was like, he was really, really good at playing guitar. So all I needed to do was to trust that Paul would teach me how to play the bass for this one song. And we, we s- totally slayed, like it was amazing. We played um, I'm 18 by Alice Cooper. Yes. And we did the, uh, the drummer who we called the, the king of the goths. He uh, played the, the intro to Hot for Teacher before we started, which You're done. so many you people. Won. Yeah. So when we were yeah. first, we went first, which was oh. the honor. Like that was the good thing. And afterward, my dad came up to me and I wore... An, an apron that that this woman had painted this painting on and a bikini so that it, from the audience it looked like I just had on this apron and I was naked underneath and again this is in a suburban Detroit high school and afterward my dad came up to me and he said you know you guys sounded like the Stooges and I was like oh my god if I do nothing else in my life <laughs> I know right now that I have impressed my dad yeah. In a way that, I mean, that was the highest compliment. And it was awesome. Being compared was, to the Stooges is the highest compliment. It was awesome. <laughs> and and your dad knew what he was talking about. Oh, he totally knew what he was talking about because he had seen uh, the Stooges play at our high school, his senior year of high school. He went to the same school. And um, Iggy shot up in the bathroom, and then no one was allowed to play there until like two or three years before that talent show. So there was a th- almost 30 year moratorium on, on music being performed by people at this, uh, in this auditorium because of the Stooges. Uh, <laughs> and my dad was there. So for him to say that was just, t- I mean, it like totally exploded my heart, but that was the kind of connection that we had, which was um, my parents both loved music so immensely and made it such a part of our lives from the time that we were little kids, my, my brother and sister and me, uh, where they took us to shows. The first show I ever saw was, um, my dad and I went and saw the monkeys mm. at Pine Knob when I was four. Still calling it Pine Knob, yeah, by the always, way. Always, always Pine Knob. Always Pine Knob forever. <laughs> forever, forever. And, um, and then, and so this idea of being at seeing live music mm. and how that connection to the performer and the person making the art to the people in the audience and our connection as audience members to the other people who we're experiencing it with that was instilled in me um the importance of that from a very young age which i think has driven my desire to even as i strive to uh, publish more to still want to be on stage as much as possible because there's just something about live performance that I I never want to get rid of that feeling. It there's nothing quite like it. I was um there used to be a 
party band in the city called uh, the Groove Circus. Mm-hmm. And they hung out at Honest John's and played Honest John's after he moved from field. And I used to hang out with those guys. And I did a couple of shows. And I did a, um, I did, they used to do uh, Lady Marmalade. And I did it with them one night. And we were in this tent. And I finished singing. And it was, you know, let's establish that they just done the dip. So all these people had just gone out on to Belle Isle in December and jumped into the Detroit River. Uh-huh. So everybody was cold. Everybody already was a little off the bubble. And then everybody came back to this heated tent and started drinking. So we're not dealing with a super critical audience. Like, they're going to scream and yell at anything. But when I finished singing, they lost their minds. And I remember my heart racing because I'd never heard that much noise that close up. And I'm like, there's a rush that comes from this. If you can get over the fear, mm-hmm. this could be killer. Um, but I've had similar rushes like that as a storyteller. Oh, totally. And I'm like, I don't think I don't think that people would think that you would get that same kind of applause or that same kind of run from first person narrative storytelling, but you can. Um, but I also want to ask you this because we're sliding into the lightning round, so I'll start a little early with this question. Sure. Give me a couple of bands that you would do anything to see live. You've either already seen them live or... Can they be bands that absolutely, like, of people are dead in them? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the the top three that I never got to see that I can't believe that I will never get to see are Bowie, Prince, and Leonard Cohen. Um, mm. and And I am upset every time I think about the fact that I will never get to experience those amazing artists making their art live. But I know that continuing to appreciate what they've made keeps them alive. And, um, and that is pretty worth it. But in terms of, man, you know, I just saw them again, and it was my fifth time. Uh, and every time, they just are amazing, and their connection to the audience is so is. You feel like you are one group of people, like one entity at a beach house show. And I just saw a beach house again. Are you familiar mm, with that? I am not. They're like kind of ambient rock and roll from Baltimore and it's and it's kind of gothy gothy pop noise rock. I don't know, it's really hard to describe, but they're it's completely beautiful and from the beginning to the end of their performing everyone is locked in and connected and it just feels good the whole time. And their songs are sad, but they're but they're full of so much beauty in that sadness that that getting to experience that live is every time it happens. I'm like, fuck. And (laughs) I also just saw David Byrne. Oh, and if you if anyone ever has the chance to see him spend any amount of money that you have to, because that he is. His live show is perfect theater. It's perfect theater. And after I saw it, I texted my best friend, Khalid, who was there but not with me. And we were just so inspired to make our own art by seeing what he did. And these songs that he's performing, some of them are 40 years old. 
and but it, they're great. And they're great. And the but the way that he breathes new life into them and keeps no, he, you know, he, I, I would imagine he knows that we as audience members and fans have expectations to hear certain Talking head songs. But the way that he sets it up with what's happening on stage makes them sound different than we've ever heard them before. And it's it's remarkable. And to do that as a performer, to take something that everyone knows, pull it out of that everyone knows box perform it anyway make it seem new and still get the people who've always known it to not flip out yeah that's amazing because i have watched people in concerts flip out like that's not the way that song goes and they're singing it in their head i went to see um you two came around and did the joshua tree like the 40th anniversary for the joshua tree i was in the nosebleed seats at ford field but i didn't care because it's U2 and I've never seen them before and I love U2 and they played the Joshua Tree in its entirety Mm. and there are people who got through the first part of the concert got through the first half of the Joshua Tree and got up and left because that's all they want they didn't even want to hear the second half of the Joshua Tree or any of the songs they were going to play after and it's a $75 I, I literally was in the back of the ladies' room. That's where my chair was, on the top part of the bowl. <laughs> it would have been simpler for them to put a hole in the roof and lower me down than for me to climb the stairs. Yeah. And people paid $75 for that ticket and left halfway through the concert. I'm like, it's Bono. I will watch that man brush his teeth. Like, I don't understand how you could leave that early. And I didn't, I had forgotten how much you 2 I know. Because yeah. I went just to hear that. And when they started singing songs, I'm like, holy crap, I know that song. I know that song. I know that. I didn't even know I knew that much U2. And I'm singing along. Like, I didn't even know this was a U2 song. Because mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't pay attention to stuff like that. But that was a great concert. And the man is a vampire. So watching him be a vampire is awesome. Because he 100% is chewing off the energy from the audience. That's- 100%. And when they ebb, he ebbs. And if you bring it back, he comes back. It's it's fascinating. All right. I lo- okay. So... I want to see these. We're going to have to have, at some point I'm going to have a website. We'll have like links to the bands. Cause these are, those are, I want to see everybody you said. Um, but I also have my other, so you're ready for the lightning round. Yeah, I'm making ready. these up I'm as ready. we go. All right. I'm, All right. I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm literally the pulling these out of the crack of my ass. Cause okay. Shannon suggested I do a lightning round. Uh, favorite dessert. Oh, uh, raspberry pie. Raspberry pie. Mm-hmm. Not cobbler. No nope, pie. Fascinating. Where do you get your raspberry pie from? I make it. So your favorite dessert is the dessert that you make. Yeah. It's my grandma's recipe. Okay. I'm in. All right. Um, favorite city to stay in. That's not Detroit. Like you're excited every time you go. Yeah. Savannah, Georgia. No, I would not have expected Savannah, Georgia, but it's a good call. It's that's really a good, good call. It's a pretty town. Um, place that you want to go that you've never been uh i i really really want to go to mexico city ah what's the deal with mexico city you know it's just this hub of history and food and culture and art that um i think i need to experience it's a valid answer uh Book that you think everyone should read? Um, yeah, that's so hard. So the, the, oh man, 
or several? Give me, give me, give me several. Well, so I'm, uh, what the thing that is hard with me is that I'm really bad at titles. And so I'm right now I'm, I'm in this space where I'm completely blanking on titles of things, but, um, the year of magical thinking ah. changed my life completely. Um, the Chronology of Water by Lydia Yuknevich. If you've never read that book and you have experienced grief in your life at all, it uh, will... It's a really big help. When my dad died, two separate friends mm. sent me that book that don't know each other. And it really, really helped me. Even if you haven't experienced grief in the, in the way of death. Because I think that's just one kind you of grief. You can grieve a lot of things. Yeah. I think there are people who don't recognize that grief shows up in loss yeah. and loss isn't always death exactly it's you know and sometimes grief shows up in change uh, and change yeah. isn't you know change it's a is often good yeah and you can still you, you can, can still, still grieve, it. grieve sometimes you make a decision and your life gets better and you can still grieve the time that your life wasn't better mm-hmm. which is also how you rob yourself of your future you know but i digress um we are never meeting in real life by sam we, irby Ah, uh, ooh. Uh, she has an amazing blog called "Bitches Gotta Eat." <laughs> uh, and best she, title yeah. ever. Um, but anything by Sam Irby and uh, anything that that um, Megan Steelstra writes, she uh, is a Chicago-based author who is from Chelsea, Michigan, which is right next to Pinckney. Uh, and so a lot of her writing, she also writes a uh, personal essay, and she. Mm performs too and a lot of her work centers around the midwest um and feels very familiar but also brand new um which is pretty rad and this friday i know this is the lightning round but this friday i am uh i get have the great pleasure of being able to interview Dessa, who is a rapper who just had her first book of essays published on uh, Dutton, um, that is in my bag right now. <laughs> We're also on video, so she's going to flash it. And it's called My Own video. Devices. Uh, and she, so she's a musician who wrote essays about being on the road uh. and about being in love and trying to fall out of love with this man who she rapped with. And it's, it's, She's amazing. And so I get to interview her this week uh, at the Ann Arbor Public Library, which is, again, bringing things back to the library that you wouldn't think would be there. Um, and she, it's it's great. Okay. I'm all of the all of the things that you said. And I want to let everybody know this Friday, because we are taping this show might not be oh, the yeah. Friday you hear it. So feel free to check out is the Ann Arbor Public Library. Yeah. The Ann Arbor 
what do they call it? District Library. District Ann Arbor. So A-A-D-O. check out the Ann Arbor District Library because it might not be Patty and and Dessa having an interview, but check out the library anyway. Check out the Detroit Public Library. Mm-hmm. Uh, literary things are happening in libraries all the time, and we need to support them because we. Um, I just saw this thing today where Google Plus is shutting itself down mm-hmm. because there was a breach. I just heard this whole thing on. Um, fresh air about bots running Twitter and running Facebook. We're getting ready to shut the whole internet down at some point. So we're going to have to go back to look at stuff mm-hmm. up in paper <laughs> that hasn't changed. So please, 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 please. This is my plug. Please always support your public libraries. They need you. Um, and public libraries have things other than media to check out too, which is amazing. And it's free. And at the Ann Arbor district library, you can actually, you can check out a telescope. You can check out art that you need to keep what? for three months. It's, it's, and they're, they're really paving the way for public libraries uh, in the country. Um, and I think we're seeing other libraries around the area adopting some of the things that they've, that they do because they're really, it's pretty remarkable. Public libraries also have small meeting rooms mm-hmm. that are usually are free. free. You yeah. know, first person come, you sign up, that's your room. Um, I know the Southfield Public Library has this great, like, huge reading tree where the kids can climb the tree mm-hmm. and play in the tree. And inside the tree is a sleeping dragon who wow. actually makes real sleeping dragon sounds, which makes me very happy even though I'm not a child. So I like to hang out on the kids section of uh, the Southfield Public Library listen to the dragon snore, but whatever. Um <laughs> The Detroit Public Library is beyond the pale of yeah. things in there. You you could go in there just looking and spend a day and lose a day, especially if they let you into the basement. I used to do the first thing when I was at Waldorf, I didn't really read. And my mother put me in this reading pages program or something crazy. And every Saturday I'd have to go to the Detroit Public Library, go in the basement and have book discussions with other kids my age, That's third grade. It's it was strange. I started reading Shakespeare after that just to get out of having to go every Saturday. I'm like, look, <laughs> I can read Shakespeare. Can I stop going to this crap now? Um, but shout out to libraries for pushing it through. Patty, thank you so much Thanks for, for being on the show and participating in our very weird and very strange lightning round uh, and giving us so much good information. Thank you for everything that you do for the moth. And thank you for being my friend. Thank you for everything, Dame. Yay. So... Again, this is Dave's Eclectic Brain. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us anywhere that you get your podcasts, iTunes, uh, CastBox, wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please go and leave a five-star review. That helps other people find us. If you don't like what you hear, please go and leave a five-star review and help other people find us. And then you can stop listening once you get somebody to take your place. And... uh, Again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for all the letters that we get. We don't get any letters. I just say that. Thank you for all the letters and emails that we're getting about the show. We're not getting anything at all. And thank you to the six of you who are listening. And again, thank you for hanging out with Dame's Eclectic Brain. Mm, mm, mm. Now that's homemade.